friends, welcome back to Anti-Visions. Well, today I'm going to pick up with my discussion about surveillance capitalism. I've been talking a little bit about the book by Shoshana Zuboff, a professor at Harvard, called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power. And in some of the past episodes, I've talked about uh, the element of surveillance capitalism, especially within big tech, that harvests all of our data, everything that we do, everything we say, anything that can possibly be recorded, whether they're pictures or um, text messages or just a a history of our purchases, Google Maps, everywhere that we've actually been, every book we've read, especially electronically, the music we listen to, just this compilation of um, all of this data, which then is turned into a like a digital identity or like a a model of who you are. So for instance, if you've used Google for more than 10 years or at least 10 years, they have the equivalent of 3 million pages of information about your life. Google can actually remember more about your life than you can and therefore can make really good decisions about or anticipations about what you're going to do next. So this harvesting of data was almost immediately harnessed by Google once they discovered what they could do with all this residual data about people. And they turned their company into the most profitable uh, advertising company in the world. I think there might be one other that's more profitable, but that's okay for Google because advertising is not the only thing that they make money off of. But it didn't take long for this innovation to develop into something else, which is something I just mentioned before, which is prediction about our behavior. But then those predictions then give them the knowledge that they need to actually manipulate our behavior. So rather than just predicting what we're going to do and using that for advertising was the realization that they can actually modify our behavior through behavioral science techniques like BF Skinner conditioning. And there are, there's just a whole slew of terms that they employ um, so that they can actually modify our behavior, not just for the purpose of traditional capitalism. And what I mean by that is we know that as consumer America, we've been conditioned to want products, to want our iPhones, to want certain things. And so the advertising world has gotten really good at using the behavioral sciences. But I'm talking about something that goes far beyond that. I'm talking about behavior modification that goes beyond the idea of just selling your product into utopian dreams of socially engineering a society, of getting people to behave Um, and produce certain outcomes that don't necessarily benefit that particular company or what you would consider a a, a traditional capitalist endeavor. And this might all sound kind of crazy or heady or whatever, but uh, if you've seen The Social Dilemma, you're somewhat familiar with this idea. So what I want to do is take a little bit of information, just the tip of the iceberg, and bring it down to the real world and make it as simple and plain as I possibly can, hopefully to startle or alarm you a little bit. 
because I'm convinced that right now, with all the culture wars and just the meltdown of our society, in many ways, we are engaged in the wrong debates. Not to say that they're not important, not to say that politics isn't important, not to say that the COVID debate isn't important. Well, actually, I, I, I think that we need to have a COVID debate. And right now we're being shut down so that the idea is there should be no debate about COVID. Um, but it's those particular um tensions in society and then all the culture wars about whether it's transgender theory and you know swimmers that are transgender men but they're swimming on the women's team and all these things that we are completely divided on and we're tearing each other apart in the meantime there are massive changes right underneath the hood and we are all going to be victims of it we're all using the same platforms the same um, technologies and the way these technologies are being used is a, f- a far greater threat to our democracy, to use a favorite term of the media these days, a far greater threat than any riot on Capitol Hill, than any podcast on Joe Rogan that's spreading supposed medical misinformation. As a matter of fact, as I share all of those wacky ideas or think of right now, there's the trucker convoy in Canada right now, the Freedom Convoy with this massive uh, protest. And then you have Canadian media that is state run media. So they completely black it out. So there are Canadians that don't even know how big this is. And then there are many Canadians that do support it. It's gone international. And yet still mainstream media and the elite are portraying it as a big racist event. They're portraying it as, you know, a danger to our society and all of these things when they're actually exercising democratic rights. But the the means by which all of this is playing out actually demonstrate many of the problems that are going under on under the hood with social engineering because not only is everything being surveilled and monitored through technology but people are being manipulated without even knowing it and so that's what I want to talk about is do what you believe do you believe it because you really do or because you've been programmed to believe it and how would you even know if you've been programmed and manipulated in your thinking as I share some of these things, I know most of my friends listening have got your head on, the sh- on your shoulders, and my intention is not to startle anyone into, you know, so, like some kind of existential crisis of knowledge, like, oh my gosh, I don't even know if I can trust anything. I don't even know if I can trust if I even exist. Well, obviously, uh, you're not going to go that extreme, hopefully, but I do think we have reason to be deeply concerned about how we've acquired knowledge, how we acquire belief. And uh, even though I don't want to go off on my theories about how important it is to know both sides of the story, I think that's one simple way to do it is, you know, it's just like GPS. The way that a GPS system locates where you are geographically is it triangulates. It gets three points of reference, which are satellites, and it's able to use those points of reference to determine where you are on the surface of the earth. And Ideas are like that as well. We need information. We don't need censorship. And the way to manipulate people is to censor, to withhold information so that there's no point of reference. And then that way, if there's only one stream of information, there's only one source, then that information can be manipulated. However, if we don't allow things like that to happen, which is what the First Amendment is all about, 
then you have multiple sources of information that can hold each other accountable. And we actually have a grid and we can be able to look. And that's why I think it's so important to hear multiple sides of the story. It's fine to have your strong opinions. I have strong opinions, but I don't think you can have a strong opinion or belief if it hasn't been tested or compared to anything else. And what we've got going on under the hood, which goes far beyond politics, is that entities like Facebook and Google are controlling the conversation. And you could say, well, they're just a private business. They're a private entity. They have every right to do that. However, if you're not able to communicate on Facebook or through Google's platform or through uh, Twitter, then you're essentially excluded from the public sphere. It's more like a utility. It's actually something that, you know, it would be like saying when I was growing up, you had Southwestern Bell, you had AT&T, just the phone companies. It would be like saying, well, we don't like what you're saying on the phone to your friends. Therefore, we are no longer going to allow you to use this utility. No, those utility companies were viewed as something that they could not make that choice over what's being discussed on the phone lines. And it's similar like that with these entities that have been given undue power to censor and regulate what's being said in the public sphere. But it doesn't just stop there. They're not just controlling what's being said. They're actually shifting people's mindsets, mentalities, and and modifying people's behavior slowly and incrementally using behavior science. So let me give you some examples. Let's let's start with Facebook. And I'm just going to pull this from Shoshana's book. And she talks about in 2012, Facebook researchers, and this is on page 298 of her book. Um, she says, Facebook researchers startled the public with an article provocatively titled, A 61 Million Person Experiment in Social Influence and Political Mobilization published in the scientific journal Nature. Now, I'm just going to make a side comment. Interestingly enough, this study is about voting. And then there are other things I'm going to share about Google, and they those studies connect with voting. That's not my decision, okay? These guys are modifying things in all kinds of areas, but a major place that they really work on and have also been caught, in a sense, has to do with politics and voting. And yet we're supposed to not talk about voting or politics at all. We're just supposed to let these powerful entities do what they're doing. So here we have a 61 million person experiment done. Now this this experiment, when people found out about it, this was 2012, people were really outraged. There are a lot of things that Facebook and Google have done in the past that once it was exposed, once people found out uh, that they were manipulating people or using their information, uh, that people are really outraged. But over time, we all forget about it because, you know, we don't really remember anything that happened more than two weeks ago in this country anymore. But also, over time, they have these wonderful bells and whistles and tools that they're able to give to us. So it's a quid pro quo. You know, we're willing to take their goodies and in return, they basically say they should be allowed to take our stuff, you know, our data and our information. But it really goes far beyond quid pro quo. It's really a Faustian bargain. We're making a deal with the devil. We're selling our souls by doing this. 
in the end, we will not have freedom if we keep going down this route. And that sounds dramatic, but it's not. Um, so let me get back to this study. So she says that um, in her book, the team calculated that the manip- so what they did is they manipulated voting and, and basically they were looking at voting behaviors of people using the I voted button and they were doing all kinds of experiments to see how they could influence people to go vote. Now for them, they saw this as a really good thing. And that's the other part is these guys are utopians. Um, Facebook, Zuckerberg, a lot of the people on the executive team, uh, Google especially, and then within the company, they have strong values, and most of them really believe they're doing good things. The question is not whether they're doing good things or whether they believe they're doing good things. The question is whether they should have the power to make decisions for our country, and it's not just our country, it's other countries as well. They're impacting every country in the earth whether they should have that power, especially in a democracy like America, really a constitutional republic, but they water down our voices, individuals, and decide their voice counts more. So there are lots of principles and questions that uh, need to be answered. So here she says, the team calculated that the manipulated social messages sent 60,000 additional voters to the polls in in the 2010 midterm elections, as well as another 280,000 who cast votes as a result of a social contagion effect for a total of 340,000 additional votes. In their concluding remarks, the researchers asserted that, quote, we show the importance of social influence for affecting behavior change. The results suggest that online messages might influence a variety of offline behaviors, and this has implications for our understanding of the role of online social media in society. Now, that might sound like, oh, well, that's a good thing. They're getting people to get out and go vote. But that's a very short-sighted perspective. This is a tool that's being developed that has potential. It's like the ring in the Lord of the Rings. It's that allure of, well, you have all this power and we can do all of these good things. But the more power that it gives, the more bad things that can happen as well. Here are the words of one former Facebook product manager who said, experiments are run on every user at some point in their tenure on the site. That means if you have a Facebook page, you've been experimented on. Whether that is seeing different size and copy or different marketing messages or different call to action buttons or having their feeds generated by different ranking algorithms, the fundamental purpose of most people at Facebook working on data is to influence and alter people's moods and behavior. They are doing it all the time to make you like stories more, to click on more ads, to spend more time on the site. This is just how a website works. Everyone does this, and everyone knows that everyone does this. Well, I must say, not everyone does this. Only Facebook and Google, and maybe some other entities I don't know about, have that kind of power to manipulate behavior. An individual running a website doesn't have it. And the reality is that's not the, the limit or the border of what they do in their experiments and their attempt to modify people's behaviors. Zuboff said that the Facebook studies publication evoked fierce debate as experts and the wider public finally began to reckon with Facebook's and the other internet companies' unprecedented power to persuade, influence, and ultimately manufacture behavior. 
Harvard's Jonathan Zittrain, a specialist in internet law, acknowledged that it was now possible to imagine Facebook quietly engineering an election using means that its users could neither detect nor control. He described the Facebook experiment as a challenge to collective rights that could undermine, quote, the right of, the, of people as a whole to enjoy the benefits of a democratic process, close quote. Now, mind you, this was in 2012, and they were talking about Facebook's ability to quietly and secretly engineer an election. And not only the most chilling part is that they could do it so that its users could neither detect nor control, didn't even know that it's happening. Zuboff then goes on to share about another experiment or study that was released. And she says, once again, public outcry was substantial. The British newspaper, The Guardian, asked, if Facebook can tweak emotions and make us vote, what else can it do? Hmm. Well, I guess with a little bit of imagination, one could imagine a world where Facebook not only affects the outcomes of the election and gets you to vote, but gets you to vote the way that they want you to vote. Another thing that Zuboff talks about is the debates that went on about the dangers of Facebook running these kind of experiments and yet not using proper psychological standards because they're doing psychological uh, uh, experiments. And it was, it was also the realization of the powerful tools that they have to, to run all kinds of experiments constantly on multiple levels. And so there were fears that, one, they're not following ethical uh, standards because they're not really held to them. But there were also the fears that, um, that universities and other private institutions would farm out their studies to Facebook for this purpose or other entities like Facebook so that they're not held to those ethical standards. But then it produces all kinds of other questions like, because of serious conflicts of interest and the desire to verify one's conclusion without actually really paying attention to the data and the fact that no one would really be held accountable if the data is essentially manipulated in order to generate the kind of conclusions that they want. It was only just recently that I ran across an article on unheard.com entitled How the Government Abused Nudge Theory. And the guy who wrote it is a proponent of social behaviorism and all this stuff. And he's apparently part of this whole movement of developing nudge units. And I didn't even know what nudge was. I look back and, and of course, uh, Zuboff does mention it in her book. I know for sure here on page 293, I'm looking at it. Um, she talks about nudge, but there's a book that was, I don't know when it was originally published, but they did a new publication of it during COVID. And so I got it. I haven't gotten to read it yet, but it has all these quotes from, you know, like the head of the NBA and governments and all these big wigs who just praise this book. Uh, it's written by a guy named Thaler and there's a co-author with it as well. And the thing that it's really been used for more recently, of course, is to, to not, I would say coerce, but they would say to modify people's behavior and basically nudge them towards um, 
COVID vaccines, towards mandates, to, to basically be compliant with the government in all of the things that they're pushing for. So it's a behavioral science book, and it's about how you can nudge people's behaviors. And of course, they claim this is not manipulation. But I'll just read a couple of things that he says here in here that, that kind of struck me as I uh, read this, because I just wasn't even aware of how big all of this behavior science, even reading Zuboff's book and realizing these guys that are higher up, uh, how they employ behavior science and love B.F. Skinner and love all these ideas of conditioning and uh, choice architecture is something they talk about, which actually is a is Richard Thaler's discovery. It's one of one of or one of his terms, choice architecture. That just sounds so dystopian. But this is what the author in this article unheard. Uh, and I'll try to post it in the notes as well so you can read it for yourself. But he says, I was a co-founder and leading figure within the nudge unit. <laughs> what the heck is the nudge unit, I was thinking. And he goes on, he says, since in its inception in 2010, the unit has been a success st story for the government. When I joined, we were a team of seven within what was called the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. Now, of course, this is in the UK. OK, so talking about the British government. In 2014, we were able to spin out of government. We became an independent, profit-making, social-purpose company, a third owned by the cabinet office. Well, that's eerie. We could sell our services to the whole of the UK public sector and any other government or organization seeking to improve people's lives. A big part of my role was to introduce behavioral science thinking to public policy challenges in other countries. Oh, good. I love the new versions of imperialism. Okay, I'm going to get serious here. In doing so, we won new contracts and opened new markets, but also helped to spread the application of behavioral science. In 2010, the Nudge Unit was the first and only government unit dedicated to behavioral science and public policy. By 2021, there were over 400 globally. When I read that, I just, my jaw dropped. I couldn't even believe it. I'm thinking, I don't even know what a nudge unit is. Now there are 400 global nudge units, and he's talking about within governments, within government institutions where they actually have these nudge units that help with public policy and how we're going to basically manipulate people to follow along with what the good government wants. I'm telling you, friends, there truly is value in skepticism. And what I mean is healthy skepticism. We should have a healthy skepticism of information that's given to us. We, have, we should have a healthy skepticism of our government. We sh even listening to our pastor, we should have a healthy skepticism and still search things out for ourselves and triangulate like a GPS and still, you know, counterbalance it with other forms of knowledge so that we know so that we can locate where we are on the tr truth scale. But let's get back to big tech here. Something that Zuboff says is that one senior engineer told her, quote, sensors are used to modify people's behavior just as easily as they modify device behavior. He says, but at the individual level, it also means the power to take actions that can override what you are doing or even put you on a path that you did not choose. 
And in this part of the book, she talks about some of this choice architecture and nudging and tuning and actuation and all these terms that conditioning, hurting, all these different terms that are even used within the big tech world to manipulate our behavior. Another software developer explained to her, um, talking about the Internet of Things, said, we can engineer the context around a particular behavior and force change that way. Context-aware data allow us to tie together your emotions, your cognitive functions, your vital signs, etc. We can know if you shouldn't be driving, and we can just shut your car down. We can tell the fridge, hey, lock up because he shouldn't be eating. Or we tell the TV to shut off and make you get some sleep. Or the chair to start shaking because you shouldn't be sitting so long. Or the faucet to turn on because you need to drink more water. Now, obviously, those are um, those are techniques. In specific, they're talking about hurting. So those are techniques where they can actually force you to make a, a particular decision. And, you know, somewhere that this does have real-world application in everyday life is China. Of course, China uses the technology that Google and our other um, big tech companies in Silicon Valley developed here in the U.S., and they clearly have interest in using all of these, of course, not for dictatorial or communist purposes. No, nothing like that. They have a vision of a better world, and we should trust them. Zuboff says, as the chief data scientist for a much admired Silicon Valley education company told me, conditioning, this is a quote, conditioning at scale is essential to the new science of massively engineered human behavior. Huh, that's funny. I, I don't remember seeing that one on the ballot. I don't remember voting on that, that whole idea. The, the new science of massively engineered human behavior? But wait, let's just hear a little bit more of what this Silicon Valley guru has to say. The goal of everything we do is to change people's actual behavior at scale. We want to figure out the construction of changing a person's behavior, and then we want to change how lots of people are making their day-to-day -day decisions. When people use our app, we can capture their behaviors and identify good and bad ones. Then we develop treatments or data pellets that select good behaviors. We can test how actionable our cues are for them and how profitable certain behaviors are for us. I also want to share a little bit about Google and the things that they do, the ways that they manipulate information, because I don't want to just pick on little Facebook. Facebook is huge. Their, their reach is gargantuan, but it is really nothing, in my opinion, next to Google's. And Google oftentimes gets to hide behind the scenes. The reality is that just their simple search engine in and of itself is the most, possibly the most powerful manipulation machine out there. And it's right in front of your face. Uh, somebody who talks a lot about this, has done a lot of research, is Dr. Robert Epstein. And actually, recently on Joe Rogan, January 21st, he was on Joe Rogan. So I appreciate Joe. I guess he's been tracking with my podcast and listening because it was just in time for this 
this next episode on anti-visions. So it really saved me having to interview Dr. Robert Epstein and all that stuff. And and now I can just direct you to Joe Rogan, of course, if you'll listen to him because he's so dangerous with all the misinformation and stuff. But otherwise, if you're willing to go listen, it's an incredible interview with Epstein. He's been doing this research. He's a psychologist, renowned. You know, he's been an editor of Psychology Today and all kinds of credentials. As a matter of fact, let me share a little bit about his bio so you know he's not just some wacko out there, but he's a research psychologist. He has been for nearly 40 years and has also served in various editorial positions at Psychology Today magazine and Scientific American. He received his PhD at Harvard University in 1981 and has since published 15 books and more than 300 scientific and mainstream articles on artificial intelligence and other topics. This guy is legit. The stuff, the research that he does is published in scientific journals. It's science. It's not just random stuff. If you go look him up, you're going to see articles from The Verge and from others that will have have hit pieces on him to explain why we shouldn't listen to him. But alas, like I said, you need to triangulate. I go read what they say. My question is, do they read what the other side says? It's very easy for the left to not pay attention to any studies or anything that supposedly is conservative, aside from the fact that Dr. Robert Epstein is not a conservative in by any stretch of the imagination. He is on the left. Um, I don't know if he considers himself a leftist, but he definitely is a Democrat, voted for Hillary, did not vote, you know, he did not vote for Trump. He's not a Republican, okay? It's sad that we even have to say that kind of stuff. But I'm going to read a little bit from his, there's a paper that he's released called Google's Triple Threat, and just some of the summaries of some of his findings. One of the things he says in the introduction is, the rise of the internet has given these companies, meaning Google and what he calls Google and the gang, like Facebook and other social media companies, has given them unprecedented power to control public policy, to swing elections, to brainwash our children, to censor content, to track our every move, to tear societies apart, to alter the human mind, and even to re-engineer humanity. Okay, now I'm going to share some of his discoveries. One, he says, in 2016, biased search results generated by Google's search algorithm likely impacted undecided voters in a way that gave between 2.6 and 10.2 million votes to Hillary Clinton, whom I supported. Now, of course, you might say, well, who cares? Hillary didn't win. I hope you're not saying who cares, because... The issue is that they had that kind of impact in behavior. So one thing that he talks about a lot is, you know, these algorithms, aside from the fact they're they're designed with bias because they're designed by people who all these people are on the left and they have particular political leanings and biases. And these algorithms are formed in their image, kind of the way we're formed in God's image. Well, these algorithms are formed in the leftist's image. Okay, so he doesn't phrase it that way, but essentially he's saying they carry bias. But still, these algorithms operate in such a way, if you're strong in what you believe, then when you're watching YouTube or Google, you're just going to get more of the content that you already think, right? Or Facebook, even for that matter. That's how those algorithms work. They just keep you in your side of the equation unless you seek out information from the other side. But, and it doesn't matter if you're on the right or the left, you're going to get more of what you consume. But... 
the people who are undecided. And Google knows exactly who those people are. They're not sure about what they think politically. They're not sure about what candidate they're going to vote for. They're not sure about what dinner they're going to eat. It doesn't matter. But mostly undecided. Those are the people that they manipulate with their technologies. Now, they do, through his studies, he's found, they do also go into, especially on the right, and will particularly try to sway people. But the people who generally they're going after, especially for election data, is the undecided group. And they know exactly who they are. They know everything about them better than those people know about themselves. And they know exactly how to sway them in a particular direction and modify their behavior. So... He says, he says, I know the number of votes that shifted because I've conducted dozens of controlled experiments in the U.S. and other countries that measure the extent to which opinions and votes shift when search results favor one candidate, cause, or company. I call this shift SEME, the search engine manipulation effect. My first scientific paper on SEME was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2015 and has since been accessed or downloaded from PNAS's website more than 100,000 times. And he will say, this is like nerdy scientific stuff. That's unheard of for a nerdy scientific paper to be downloaded more than 100,000 times. He says, SEAM has also been replicated by multiple researchers, including a research team at one of the Max Planck Institutes in Germany. SEAM is one of the most powerful forms of influence ever discovered in the behavioral sciences, and it is especially dangerous because it is invisible to people. It's subliminal in effect. It leaves people thinking they have made up their own minds, which is very much an illusion. It also leaves no paper trail for authorities to trace. Worse still, the very few people who can detect bias in search results shift even farther in the direction of the bias. So merely being able to see the bias doesn't protect you from it. The bottom line? Biased search results can easily produce shifts in the opinions and voting preference of undecided voters by 20% or more up to 80% in some demographic groups. Another thing he talks about is Google's autocomplete feature. Like when you type in a search, like if I want to find out about Dr. Robert Epstein, I start typing in DR, and the second I do, all these things start popping up, and it starts suggesting and auto-completing for you. And he talks about this on Joe Rogan, and in, in this, you can actually, I'll put the link to this study he has. It's a huge... Uh, I don't know, 50-page report, Google's triple threat. And he talks about all kinds of things, but one of them is the autocomplete feature. And he says, my recent research demonstrates that Google's autocomplete search suggestions can turn a 50-50 split among undecided voters into nearly a 90-10 split without people's awareness. A growing body of evidence suggests that Google, Google is manipulating people's thinking and behavior from the very first character people type into the search box. Now you might think, no way. Well, you need to listen or read about the rationale before you make that decision. And it also makes me think, it's funny because just before doing this episode, I, I looked up uh, counter arguments against Dr. Epstein and one was a, a Verge article and there were just all these experts that were being quoted and psychologists and you know one of the things they say is well nobody else 
is coming to these conclusions. But of course, nobody else will even touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole because not only is it dangerous for their career, it's actually dangerous for their lives. But I digress. One of the things I was going to say about the Verge article was from one lady who I suppose is some kind of psychologist claiming that it's a weak argument about the influence of social media on voting because it's been so dismal. They say that, you know, we haven't been able to influence enough people to go to the election and go to the polls. Now, I didn't look at the date of this because surely it had to have been written before the last elections where we just basically broke the ballot box with the turnout. But aside Aside from that, it's ironic because when you go back to what I was reading in Zuboff's book and the research that came out in 2012 and early on, and how even the scientific community in the world of psychology was in an uproar about the studies that Facebook itself did. Now, this guy is an actual psychologist. He actually does massive blind, double blind, all the gold standard studies uh, using technology and all this stuff and then actually has it peer reviewed and published in articles. And they're saying that, uh, you know, well, looking at this, we don't think enough people vote. And so there's no way that this really had any influence. And yet at the same time, they'll go back to 2012, 2014 with these other studies and the scientific community is in an uproar about Facebook's studies, which were not even held to the same standard as Dr. Epstein's. And they took those studies extremely seriously. Just find that kind of interesting. But of course, if we only listen to one side, then we can never triangulate, can never locate ourselves, and we'll be completely disoriented and just believe what we're told. Okay, so something else he talks about is YouTube, and in particular, YouTube's algorithm for bringing the up next videos. And he says on page 14 of his study, he says, in the aggressive online monitoring, and I'm talking about Dr. Epstein says this, in the aggressive online monitoring we did in the days leading up to the 2020 presidential election and the 2021 Senate runoff elections in Georgia, we found that a whopping 93% of the election-related videos YouTube was suggesting to users had a strong liberal bias. And that bias wasn't present just in videos offered to liberal users. It was present to, to an even higher level for users identifying themselves as conservatives or moderates. He also says the bias in YouTube's up next algorithm was explained in yet, yet another leaked video in which Susan Wojcicki, still the CEO of YouTube, explains to her staff in 2017 the year that Donald Trump became president, how the algorithm that determines which videos people see was being modified to boost good content and suppress bad content. On a large screen behind her, you see a huge up arrow next to a huge down arrow to symbolize the process. This is troubling news, given that 70% of the videos people watch on YouTube worldwide are suggested by that up next algorithm. So I think you guys get the point. I haven't even really gotten started. There's so much on this, whether you go listen to Dr. Robert Epstein, download his Google leaks, his, his triple Google threat article, or check out what I was talking about, the article about nudge, the nudge theory, 
Or even there's a book by Zach Voorhees, who was a high up executive in Google, who wrote Google Leaks. And without him, we might not even know a lot of the manipulation that goes on within Google. But I hope that we all can agree that this is a major threat and a major danger. It's, you know, we might think, well, I'm not being manipulated because I'll go and I'll check out information. So I, you know, and personally, I use these platforms, but I do. I go and I check out information. I compare it to other things. I triangulate, basically, and try to figure out what's true and what's not. But like he's saying here, 70%, think how huge of an impact YouTube is. 70% of all videos consumed on YouTube People actually watch it based on the uh, the suggestion, the up next feature. So the algorithm is deciding the next video. So when people are consuming all of this content, it's due to an algorithm that is purposely trying to modify their belief system and their behavior. So it's not just about me, it's about our society. This is undermining our freedom, our democracy, and unto what end. We haven't even gotten to talk about what these guys really believe or what are some of the future implications of this kind of modification. Think about kids, young users. There's so many studies already out about the impact of social media on their mental health and even on their view of gender and the whole transgender craze. Um, this kind of stuff actually matters because there's this constant manipulation and attempt to socially engineer a world that has nothing to do with the world that we believe in, a world of individual rights or freedom. Uh, I could just go on because ultimately these guys, they don't even believe in free will. They don't believe in freedom. They don't believe in any of the liberal tenets that we're talking about. And yet we're going to allow them to engineer our society and do what's best for us. They've got great intentions, most likely, but the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, with that, I'm just going to let you guys go and look forward to seeing you next time on Anti-Visions. Anti-Visions.